I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney, for NPR Illinois Community Voices, and for the Front Row Network. I'm your host today, Craig, but I'm joined by a very special co-host, one of uh, great esteem from our Front Row Classics, one of the best shows, if not the best show on the Front Row Network, the host of Front Row Classics, Mr. Brandon Davis. How are you, sir? Hello. Present company excluded, I guess, though. But... uh... (laughs) <laughs> well, hi. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Uh, I th- this this is the first time I've actually co-hosted Beyond the Mouse. I know we need to have you on more frequently because we have a lot of people, you know, we asked our patrons what they want as far as content is concerned. Uh And a lot of them really like history of the studio and then also history of the parks as well. So, and, you know, you and I, we know that you are going to be experiencing the parks for the first time coming up before we get to this interview. This is really why I brought you on today. You got to talk to me about your excitement for going to Walt Disney World for the first time. It's crazy. I'm 35 years old and I've never been to a Disney park. So I am really thrilled to uh, get to be able to uh, experience it for the first time, you know, going as a single adult, but I've listened to uh, the podcast that Brett and Vanessa did a couple years ago about going as a single adult. And so I'm, I'm strategizing and just uh, getting everything together. I've, um, I've been having great chats with friend of the podcast, Justin Souter. And yeah, I feel like I'm all, all feed in and ready to go. That's so great. We're excited to have you down there. And I'm, my prediction is by this time next year, you have a front row classics about the parks. It's going to be like a, <laughs> a different kind of sub-series of front row classics because you're going to get hooked just like the rest of us. But oh, yeah. speaking about getting hooked, this is a book about Disney that it, when it came out, it was I found it very interesting because it's called The Disney Revolt. And it's really about the labor strike that happened uh, at the Walt Disney Studios. And as someone that loves loves Walt Disney and loves the company, I start looking at this as like, uh, oh, is this going to be fair? Is this going to be, you know, like, is it going to be historically accurate? And I got to tell you that as a Disney fan, I absolutely loved this book. In fact, I would probably put it up there as one of my favorite books that I've read on the studio on Walt Disney, uh, period, because it's done in such a way that really becomes more of a novelization of the time period around the strike and even Walt's early life. A lot of facts about Walt's early life that I didn't even really know about and uh, painted in almost like this this way that it's it reads like a movie script at times. Like it's like a, a heart pounding uh, these events that happen in Walt's life. It definitely does. And it's funny uh, looking on the, uh, the the back cover of the book, there's a lot of quotes from a lot of uh, Disney n- notable people of a couple of people that you've interviewed actually. And one of them, Don Hahn mentions that, you know, it's got everything that you want and it reads totally like a novel, but there, we mentioned it in the interview. There's everything that you can possibly think of. There is, um, there's extortion, there's murder, there's, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, labor disputes and, and, you know, Mickey Mouse, everything that you want in between. So (laughs) it's got, it's got all the makings of a great, you know, movie. I mean, when you read the book and it's really solid and it's something that hasn't been, uh, it hasn't been really reported on when you read like great, moments and you know not not great moments but notable moments in film history but i you know i host you know uh, a show about classic film and so 
I'm used to reading things that aren't necessarily positive about iconic people. So I'm used to being able to balance the good with the bad. So this was really interesting because I know that a lot of Disney fans do look at Walt Disney as this sort of mythical figure. And of course he, he earned that completely, but it is nice to see, you know, the human side and to see that he was human and that he could make mistakes like anybody else, but everybody in this book makes mistakes along the way. Absolutely. And you know, this also focuses on the individual really leading the strike, which was Art Babbitt. He was an animator for the Disney company and someone that uh, had really given, devoted a lot of himself into those early animated features, especially Snow White. He really came up with the the style that would become Goofy as we know him even today. And so he's a really important piece of animation history as well that I truly had no idea about. And so that's why I really do suggest that you go and pick up this book by Jake Friedman, uh, The Disney Revolt. But we're going to talk to Jake right now. We're going to get right over to the interview. And if you haven't read the book, don't worry. It's not spoilerific or anything. You can definitely listen to this interview. And hopefully that just inspires you to click on that uh, link from your local independent bookstore or from Amazon or wherever you can find this. But we'll come back at the end of the interview to wrap everything up. But for now, here's our interview with Jake Friedman, the author of The Disney Revolt. We are so excited and honored to invite Jake Friedman to the show today to talk all about his book, Disney, The Disney Revolt. And Jake, I've got to tell you right off the bat, uh, we have some nervous Disney fans out there right now because you, in studying this, I'm sure are aware that Walt, in a way, has become like this deity, this god among men. And so I think that we had some nervousness seeing this book because it's a time in uh, Walt's life where there's a lot of tumult uh, towards the labor unions. And I know that there are some people out there like me who generally in favor of the labor movement and always saw this as kind of like, oh, I wonder how this is going to to play. I wonder what the story is going to unfold here. But I'll say that this book, I think it does an amazing job of seeing Walt's viewpoints, uh, getting his perspectives, but particularly learning about Art Babbitt and sort of his drive and the animators of the Disney company. And it's it's such great history. Um, and it's so well done. It's so well presented that I really encourage any Disney fan to go out here and read this book because it, to me, it's just so... Uh, narrative and how it's told and we'll get into that here in just a moment but but just a great book so i i guess just thank you for coming on to the show today oh my pleasure thanks for having me brandon i think you had our first actual question now that i'm done with my <laughs> soliloquy here <laughs> yeah i i gotta tell you i've i've always been fascinated first of all by this era of hollywood history and the 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 labor strike with disney was always sort of one of those stories that fascinated me but i didn't know much about so thank you for writing this book how how long was the process and what was the inspiration for doing a book on the subject the, if i were to compress all the years it probably took around 12 years wow. Wow. to research yeah to research and write the book um and uh it was it fell into my lap when my teacher from nyu john colhane invited me back after a couple of years from graduating to speak to the class and I had been working in the animation field as an artist for a couple of years by then. All in all, I had like 10 years working as an animation artist here on the East Coast where I live. 
and always kind of like knowing in the back of my mind that my parents who were Philadelphia school teachers and always talked about a union, they had that union to back them up. And we as animation artists did not have that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so anyway, I'm at the beginning of my career. It's 2008. John Culhane asked me to speak to the class about maybe at the time I was working on Disney's little Einstein's, or maybe I was working on Nickelodeon's wonder pets. I forget, but I do my little presentation and I sit down and he says, Jake Friedman, he kind of talked like from his gut. Jake Friedman is going to write the biography of Art Babbitt. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What? At the time, I had written a couple articles for Animation Magazine. I had just started my sort of like freelance writing side hustle. Um, But he knew that I was just, I was just an avid fan of animation history. And it took a year from that from that day for me to sort of gather up the courage to pick up the project. And when I did, I flew over to LA and hung out with Mrs. Babbitt, Art Babbitt's widow. And that began a, such a lovely, warm relationship that lasted until her passing, maybe about four years ago, in which I would visit her every year. And she saved everything. And Art Babbitt during his lifetime saved everything. And she just had just like a room filled with relics going back to the teens, into the roaring 20s in New York when that when Art Babbitt lived there into his career at Disney in the 30s. And I'm sitting there in this in this big room holding Art Babbitt's Disney ID card and looking at his Disney contract and holding old photos and finding his home movies that he shot at the old Disney studio and um, listening to interviews that he had done. He just saved everything. And he knew that his story was important but also that people were going to and had been stopping him from telling it. And I think the time was right to tell it. I think I'm just grateful that people want to hear it at this point. That's so great. And, you know, you focus so well on these two men, uh, Art Babbitt and Walt Disney and sort of how they, you start off this great scene from the book and you have them kind of at their confrontation. And then you go back into the history of how each man came to that particular moment in time. And I love how this book is structured because it really does almost read like a novel. Was that intentional? How you went about doing that? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I wanted to dive into sort of the psyches of these two folks, Art Babbitt and Walt Disney and figure out what made them them. How how did they develop their personalities, their politics, because they were really at a standoff. Uh, And the strike was just a moment that changed Art Babbitt's life forever. And I don't know if it changed Walt Disney's life, but it certainly stuck with him for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. And even when talking about it years later, he, he sounds pained when talking about it to his interviewers. Um, So um, I wanted to understand who they were and how this course of events happened. And I want it to be fun to read, (laughs) you know, we in, you know, the animation field, we like a good story. And I wanted to make this a good story. I wanted to be a page turner. I teach at NYU film school and uh, I teach animation history. And I wanted young people i wanted your average 18 year old with a lot on their mind and who are easily distracted to be able to pick this up and not put it down so that's how i wrote it 
That's so great. I mean, how could a film student not be captivated by the way that you paint the picture of Walt walking into that movie theater in Kansas City and experiencing Snow White and how that would come back later on in his career? And, and just like the way that this is done is, is just it's so well done, so well written. So congratulations on this book. And I also I mentioned this at the top, but I find it to be a very remarkably fair book. It really does come at these perspectives of these two individuals, and it doesn't necessarily present aside who's right or wrong, you're left as the reader to understand better these two separate perspectives that led to this ultimate confrontation. But I'm wondering, you mentioned in your answer that uh, Babbitt had felt like people were trying to silence him and his side of the story for a long time. Did you feel any or get any resistance from Disney or the the Disney family at all in writing this um, in this book? Um, well, I haven't been able to be in touch with the family I have a friend who's friends with Abigail Disney. I think it would be fun if she picks up the book. I think it's up her alley. But as far as I, I don't know if she's picked it up. So I've, 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 I've no direction there. And, um, and I've met a couple of, of, uh, of the people of that generation, you know, the grandkids. And they seem nice, but I'm not really in touch with the family. The people who run the family museum over in San Francisco have been very supportive. Um, and, and they've read it and they love it. And they're just their hands are tied as far as what they can put on the bookshelf of the of the gift shop. They're tied by the company. So the big question is <laughs> the company. So I let the company know that this was happening. I basically wanted rights to use images of Disney characters. Um, I emailed them, and as expected, they said we'll get back to you. And it took them about six months to get back to me. Uh-huh. And uh, after that, the discourse was rather speedy. They were like, um, let us know what you're looking for and, 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 and why. I said, well, I have a chapter about Goofy. Art Babbitt is kind of considered the father of Goofy. I'd like, I'd like a high-res image of Goofy. And I talked about the Queen and Snow White and all these characters that Art Babbitt had a major hand in. He was a lead animator for Snow White and Pinocchio and Fantasia and Dumbo, as well as the Oscar-winning short Country Cousin. And he was one of the main animators for Three Little Pigs. Like I wanted all this stuff in, in, in this book, which is not published by Disney. It's published by Chicago Review Press. Mm-hmm. And I really thought I had a shot with the Disney company because um, I'm kind of buds with other Disney folks and like other artists and like some Disney legends. And I've, and I have written another book for Disney, which is they're kind of sitting on waiting to come out in a couple of years. That's the Disney afternoon book that they keep pushing. Mm. So I thought I'm trustworthy. I'm not just uh, someone who's starting a smear campaign. Well, um, I'm giving you such a long answer. The short answer is uh, they didn't stop me from anything. They they didn't say you you cannot do this. We're going to send our lawyers after you. They just didn't respond. After okay. I showed them what I wanted to to do, they asked me for the full manuscript, and my uh, my editor was like, "We don't send full manuscripts just to get image rights." And I said, "I want to be above board. I really want to send them the full manuscript just to show I'm not out to get anyone." He said, "Okay." So I sent Disney the full manuscript um, like many months before it went to print just to, you know, make everything above board. Never heard back. So I wasn't hindered, hampered. 
I wasn't aided by the Disney company. They just sort of like, I guess we're neutral in the process. Mm. It's just so interesting. And I mean, I know I'm, I'm jumping all over your question, Brandon here, but it's just, I, I just find it so interesting because I think as we learn over time there, the Walt had these potential faults that people could see in him he's human and so it's interesting you get a little bit of that even in things like saving mr banks i know that there was were they going to ever show him smoking i know that that was a that was a piece of making that film and so it's just really interesting the i that relationship that um particularly the company wants to be able to present of the founder of this company and how people perceive him as more than a man really he be, he's become a myth or a legend at this point um for sure but brandon i know you have some questions too well and hey you jake you mentioned the family museum doesn't the family museum even have a section devoted to the strike they sure do a hundred percent yeah they have a whole corner on one of the floors that is dedicated to the strike and there's a video running on loop of some footage of the strike and replicas of signs and images of like covers a variety in the Hollywood reporter all about the strike. So they address it. They address it a hundred percent. And then right next to that is stuff about Walt's testimony at the house on American activities committee. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So that's the family museum. You're not going to find that at Disneyland though. Sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. Well, and go, going back to the, uh, the beginning of the book, of course, chapter one is entitled my father was a socialist and uh, it's, it was fascinating to me to go back and read about um Walt's relationship with his father. And uh, how do you think the relationship with his dad sort of colored his views about uh, labor relations and all of that? Well, I spend the first three chapters of the book creating Walt Disney. Yeah. And, and, and I was able to kind of like find things in my research that had never been printed before. So uh, clearly Walt had a complicated relationship with his dad. On one hand, he resented his dad And on the other hand, he had empathy for his dad and his dad being a hard worker and being taken advantage of by people he trusted, particularly um, groups that masqueraded as unions when really they were pyramid schemes. Um, But also his dad, who believed in basically making the family a little like socialist enclave, wanted all the kids to go to work at a young age. And that left Walt delivering papers, you know, at four in the morning before school and after school and putting all the money into the family uh, collective. And his two oldest brothers ran away from that because they wanted to keep money for themselves. And it seems like Walt always resented them for that. Not, not like blatantly, but it sort of like created this, this narrative of loyalty being, um, being the most important quality in his life and loyalty ended up continuing to dictate how he ran his studio. It almost, and it almost to me seems like, you know, he grew up with such a uh, small town mindset that his mind couldn't even grasp the bigger corporate aspects of it. So it's almost like he wasn't even built to uh, deal with these kind of issues almost. Yeah. If you go into a bookstore, there are tons of books on leadership, uh-huh. or communication or you know how to express yourself in a way that wins friends and influences people you know Dale Carnegie mm-hmm. 1948 right. but this whole this whole idea about that that didn't exist back when Walt was building his company this idea of how to be a good manager or be a good leader leadership 
was not something that you could pick up in a bookstore and just read. You just sort of had to fly by night, you know? So he was just doing his best as a very young business leader who got very successful very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you get to the peak of all of that, which was Snow White. And that, for me, seemed to be the uh, tipping point of everything that started to go south in terms of labor relations with his employees. But were there any signs before that, you think? Not before. The studio seems to be just like a a small struggling studio, even as it was growing and even as it was winning Oscars for the shorts. Uh Um, And they were still the administration, the the management was still giving bonuses for good work on the shorts, like real generous bonuses. They had this bonus plan set in like 1935 uh, or give or take. And, um, and all these top animators were earning lots of bonuses and snow white, like they're just working hard, working hard. Snow white ends up being, they didn't know if it was going to be a success. They knew what they were working on was significant, but lots of people make significant works of art that aren't appreciated until decades afterwards. You know, Uh you don't want to (laughs) be like, you know, an artist who's deceased, who's recognized post facto. So Fortunately for the studio, Snow White was an instant hit, both critically and commercially. And everyone, all the staff was super excited. They're like, oh my gosh, we've been in this like all for one, one for all mentality to make this happen. Walt has been giving us bonuses. We have this bonus plans, not stipulated in our contract, but in our contract. Um, although the metrics weren't clear, it was part, this adjusted compensation was in their contracts. After Snow White, that paragraph or those pages about adjusted compensation disappeared. The bonuses disappeared. Uh, instead, the money ended that they were expecting, they kept waiting on and waiting on. Meanwhile, they're reading news reports uh, about this new studio being built over in Burbank. And they're like, wait a second, Walt's taking the money that he told us he was going to pay us and he's building a new studio in Burbank. And that was the beginning. That was it. The strike was not caused by one thing, but that was the beginning of unrest because they trusted this, not just the word of the management, but the mentality that we're all in it together. And if we succeed, we succeed together. And uh, it seemed that Walt had separated himself from the sailors and was spending more time in the captain's quarters, you know? You know, and you you're leading right into my next question, which is there's this absolutely wild scene in the book, which, you know, I don't want to go into great detail here because this is one of the many stories you get out of this book, which is the reason for all Disney fans to go out and pick this book up because there is like this rager of a Christmas party that happens because everyone's expecting these bonuses. And instead, uh, the studio starts to get built in Burbank. And then also there's this lavish party, which is clearly, I think in my mind, Walt trying to be like, oh, you thought I was going to fail at Snow White. So now I'm going to have this very glitzy party to kind of gloat a little bit. And uh, it's interesting to see sort of more of the adult side of the Disney business at the time and to understand sort of the inner workings there. In all of your research, was there a particular story that you came across that really surprised you? Because I'll tell you, this this rager of a Christmas party, uh, it it really got me. I was, I was in it. I was like in the moment. I was um, I felt like I was there uh, through the book, but was there something that you in your research just just shocked you when you found out about it? Uh, well, yeah, 
I was I was shocked that when, once we get to the to the days leading up to the strike, it gets so dramatic. All these things happen. Everyone is basically trying to almost like stab each other in the back. Um, and uh, I would say that secretly Art Babbitt, I'm going to put air quotes around this, but conspires with the independent union to start a spontaneous boycott of the Disney studio, like a nationwide boycott, and then not admit it, and then admit it to the Disney management. Um, the the bogus fake union that the Disney management put up as a as 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 a fraud uh, was called out on being a fraud, disbanded the next day, changed its name, and said, "We're a new union. We're not that fake union." But the PO box was the same, and all of the people running it were listed as the same. It was the next day when the flyer went out. <laughs> a lot of these, these cool revelations and the course of events came to light when I plotted all my research in chronological order. And I was like, wow, this is like, this is like a soap opera step by step. This is like, you're watching this, this speeding train go down towards a mountain and you, you can't do anything to stop it. And it's going faster and faster and faster one of these sources of research that I came across was this collection of uh, bulletins and handbills all in the um, uh, SCU uh, Northridge Oviat Library down in Southern California. There's a collection, basically the entire collection of every Disney strike handbill and pre-Disney strike memo and, and things that were hanging up on the bulletin boards, people that, uh, stuff that the people in management were putting up stuff that the um, pro union people were putting up and you just, and then during the strike, this like day by day handbill uh, course of events, it's just like looking at people's like Instagram or like Twitter feed day by day. And you're like looking at what they're doing and how they're doing it. So if you're curious about that, you or any of your listeners I took all those files, they were public domain, and I, I scanned them and I put them all in chronological order on the DisneyRevolt.com. All you have to oh, do is great. yeah, click on that timeline. There's a timeline link and you can look at every one of those documents in chronological order. So that was one huge resource that I utilized besides the Babbitt family and the private collection there. And the third major resource, which gave me a, so many cool surprises, was... Um, there was the, uh, there's this uh, uh, legal archive in San Francisco, and I was able to get my hands on a 1,500-page document of the court hearing when Art Babbitt sued Walt Disney for wrongful termination for basically discriminating against Babbitt for being a uh, union leader. So this, and so they talk about the the uh, people who testify talk about everything about the strike. Walt gets on the stand. You get to hear his words. Art Babbitt talks for two days. But some of the coolest pieces of evidence were word-by-word -word transcripts of some of the meetings that were held before, right before the strike and during the strike. Those were submitted as evidence. And reading this, you're like basically a fly on the wall. You're reading a script of all the things that people were saying. And it was there that like, I had so many aha moments because I'm looking at how Gunther Lessing, 
Walt, uh, Walt Disney's right-hand man, the vice president of the company and Walt's chief legal counsel in a meeting with the union folks, Gunther Lessing is like leaning into Walt's fears and basically egging him into refusing any sort of negotiation. He's playing Walt basically. And he, in this conversation, and it's right there in black and white, like no inference necessary. He becomes basically the Jafar of the book. <laughs> and that got me into looking more into who Gunther Lessing was. And it turns out he was like abusive to his wife and he tried to ruin the career of film star Dolores Del Rio. And like, there's all this really dirty stuff that I was able to find that had never really been pulled out of the woodwork about Walt Disney's vice president. Wow. So yeah, those were some, some aha moments and a big aha moment was um, when, th so they're having a meeting right before the strike, like three months before the strike. And they're talking about their people who are pro Walt people who are pro union. And Art Babbitt stands up and, and he, and he calls Walt a lot of things. He has every reason to be super angry at Walt, but he says basically that Walt um, has been pretty square, to use his words, like making a square deal. He says, I'm not trying to polish any apples. Walt's been pretty square, but it's no secret that he's missed the mark with the lowest level artists. And he, and he just is not aware of what's going on with the lowest level artists, basically meaning that like they're being paid far less than artists in other studios and he's also very stubborn and and he's unnecessarily anti-union in a time when we're having a lot of social change in mm -hmm. hollywood which was true like every other craft was unionizing it started with the screen actors guild and went on writers background painters and camera operators etc and he calls walt many things but um none of them is anti-Semite. And I and in all the people ask me, and I've heard this for so many years, like, so Walt Disney, anti-Semite. I was like, the only research that I have is that that started coming around during the strike, during this back and forth smear campaign, when the Disney people were calling the strikers communist led. And so they're fighting back, you know, fire with fire, calling Walt Disney an anti-Semite. But there's like, that was just a tactic to sort of like uh, demoralize the Disney people. And mm -hmm. I had found zero evidence of it. And, and, and uh, that conversation when Art Babbitt, who was Jewish, had every opportunity to say that and didn't was basically like, for me, something that settles that argument. It's really interesting because uh, we had the opportunity also to speak to Floyd Norman, and I know he has a, a blurb in your book as well. And in talking to him, it's almost like he's made it his life's work to when things come up. I know that he had a, a spat recently within the last 10 years with Meryl Streep because she had said something to the effect of Walt Disney was cruel to minority workers and, and anti-Semitic. And um, Floyd was like, hey, I was there. <laughs> you know? right. um, and so it, it, it does seem like that's 
what you get out of this. I love, uh, first of all, thank you for putting that all the timeline onto the DisneyRevolt.com because you just planned my weekend for me. But also, <laughs> um, I love that if you're an animator, it's like, I, I it would be great if you had like storyboarded this thing out in a chronological order. It's like, this is the kind of stuff that needs to be optioned here for some kind of film or something um, in the future. So putting that out into the universe, if it hasn't happened already, but uh but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, Jake, I do also know that um, Walt had a particular connection to our home state here in Illinois, uh, being born in Chicago, but also his father had some interesting history in Illinois as well. Yeah. Walt's dad, who had been hired to work at the Chicago World's Fair as a carpenter, went to or if not in, attended nearby this uh, political convention that happened around uh, the late 1800s where William Jennings Bryant spoke at uh, the Chicago uh, Convention Center. And he would tell the story for the rest of his life that, his, that, that, that he shook hands with William Jennings Bryant, um, who was, you know, like the most popular liberal candidate at the time. And it was shortly thereafter that 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 party split and Bryant became the the, the runner for the uh, for the Democratic Party and the head of the uh, Socialist Party became Eugene Debs and so Walt's dad became a Debs man and so Walt spent his first years in Chicago they went to Missouri to Marceline in the farmland came back and it was in uh, the Chicago courthouse building which i think might still be standing mm -hmm. that there was this huge bombing in 1916 was it 1917 where four people died on the first floor of the courthouse building the first floor was a post office walt disney was a was a mail carrier at the time he was 16 years old and the bomb went off just a few feet in front of him and he saw one of his coworkers wow. die the people who were accused of blowing this 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 bomb were the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, which were basically like a terrorist group of socialists. And people accused them as being the perpetrators because uh, the guy who ran the IWW what, had just been sentenced to 40 years in Sing Sing by... Uh, by Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, whose office was in that building. In a couple of years, Judge Landis would be the guy in charge of, well, he basically uh, sentenced the Chicago White Sox to be banned from, well, the, the people who were gambling against their team uh, canceled them from baseball and they became the Chicago Black Sox. So that's a little baseball history that's thrown into the book. So Walt is in Chicago, he's a postal carrier, and he's like, holy crap, the people who uh, the public believe are like a socialist terrorist group, they almost blew me up. This is the political party, the socialist party that my dad uh, adheres to. I'm going to, this is the last straw in me honoring my dad's wishes. I'm going to rage against my dad and do the very thing that the, uh, the head of the socialist party is protesting against. I'm going to join World War One. I'm going to join the war effort. Eugene Debs went to prison for protesting the war. This was the Sedition Act. He was he was breaking. He was 
uh, it was against the law to protest World War One, and Eugene Debs was happy to to serve prison time as a statement to say this is this is unjust. Well, Walt Disney's like, screw that, I'm going to join the war effort. Fudged his birth date and became an ambulance driver in France after armistice was called. So he didn't really see any any action, so to speak, but he basically hung around with these older soldiers and drew pictures for them. And he had a great time. It was a very positive experience for him. He, he comes back to Chicago feeling like he's become a, like a man. Like he went out on his own. He feel, he starts knowing who he is and starts feeling very self-sufficient. And it was shortly thereafter that he decides to kind of become his, his own boss and all that happened because of what happened in Chicago. Meanwhile, at around the same time, there's this, there's this Russian wise guy also in Chicago who was part of this like small bit mafia schemes. And his name is William Byofsky. He calls himself Willie Byoff. And he is just like so typical, like straight out of central casting. Like he has a scar on, on his cheek. He has this like, what the hell are you looking at expression on his face? <laughs> he had gotten out of serving six months of jail time for running a brothel illegally. I still don't know how he got out of it, but he, he apparently knows someone on the inside. Well, it was and, uh, Chicago in the early 20th century. <laughs> yeah. 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 And he's doing some, you know, some wise guy hustling for a few years. He realizes that, hey, it's 1933. Prohibition is repealed. This next big thing is unions because there's it's new. There are not a lot of regulations. I'm going to sign up as many projectors or people who run the projectors, the projectionists, as I can, and threaten the theater owners that I'm going to put them out on strike if the theater owners don't pay me some cold, hard cash. And he gets this racket going. And he becomes a very successful racketeer in Chicago, just with the projectionists. And the head of IATSE, which is uh, the International Association of Theatrical and Stage Employees, the Chicago head of that, his name is George Brown, and he's based in Chicago. He never leaves Chicago throughout the story. He's just, he's the home base. Well, Willie Byoff goes to him and he says, together we can make a whole lot of moolah. <laughs> and uh, George Brown, uh, who was pretty clean up till now, says, I like moolah, let's do it. And the two of them become a duo to sort of like, rake in a lot of money, blackmail a lot of uh, theater owners. Then the Capone syndicate gets wind of this and they take Willie for a little ride. And they say to Willie, and we know this because Willie testified this. He basically spilled the beans. He did what you should not do as, as far as I know, because I've seen Goodfellas. He just told, he just like told everything to court. He, he was taken for a ride and the, and uh, the Capone people said, listen, you can either go into business with us and we'll take uh, two thirds of everything you make and you and you and Brown keep the remaining third. Or uh, we'll do it ourselves. Those are your choices. So it was kind of an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> he, he joins the syndicate with all of this power because Capone's influence stretched across to the East Coast. They let... Um, these these big toughs get George Brown to not just at the next election, he now becomes the the national head of the IATSE, not just the Chicago head. And so now Willie Byoff 
like the Chicago mobsters are looking at him. They're like, now you're going to Hollywood. You're going to leave Chicago and go to Hollywood. But I was like, okay, let's do it. He was such an eager little, eager little guy. Goes down to Hollywood and starts like signing up people and and broadens the blackmailing scheme. And in a in, in a couple of years, he's like living in a mansion, and no one can pin him on anything. It's a it's what Variety calls an open secret that what he does is dirty, but he can't be pinned. They're so slippery. In the end, it's not. Um, the blackmailing that gets him, it's the same thing that got Capone, the taxes. Isn't that ironic? Yeah, so, wild. So oddly enough, yeah, so he has to go back to Chicago. He's constantly going back to Chicago. And, and when he's being accused of this, who does he blame? He blames the communists for smearing him. This, oh. is, the, this is all the communists doing. Uh, they want to delegitimize my efforts. If there were, if there were, I would say that there are two major locations in this book. Uh, although we bounce around the Midwest a little bit, just in the first couple of chapters, there's Hollywood, of course, and then there's Chicago. And yeah. Chicago is always hanging out there, and its influence manifested in Bile is sort of like a blemish on what's happening in Hollywood at that time. Mm-hmm. No offense. To the Chicago wins in the audience. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's great. I mean, again, like this uh, this book turns into this page turner that almost uh, reads like a movie script, a manuscript for a movie. So that's a that's a wonderful connection. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking about uh, you know t- the formation of guilds and unions in Hollywood, that that's a subject that's always fascinated me. You know, going back recently, reading about how the Oscars were formed in order mm. to. Uh, cater to um, actors who wanted better pay, but they thought maybe giving them a prestigious award would uh, sort of be a shiny object instead. Um, so Walt was able to uh, you know, see all this happen because as you mentioned, animation was the last uh, craft in Hollywood to unionize. So um, how was, you know, did, did Walt sort of foresee all of this coming in your opinion? <sighs> I think he had this uh, hell-bent sense of what's right and what's wrong. And Art Babbitt did too. And I think Walt was, was pushed by, his, by the vice president, Gunther Lessing, uh-huh. to stand firmly on his beliefs um, and not be flexible at all. I think he was, he, he was reading too much of, of one type of material, like, basically like the Hearst newspapers mm-hmm. and, and he like Gunther Lessing just lengthened those blinders that he was wearing. Yeah. Um, because at the beginning, all, all they wanted was just um, a chance to negotiate even back in 1930, 1938, when they were, when they first started talking about this, when Babbitt and his folks, on his team first started trying to talk about this. All they wanted was just a chance to negotiate, basically a person to represent the workers. That was all like, they weren't trying for, they, they, they didn't have really any, any significant demands other than that. Um, raising the lowest paid worker salary a little bit, but that was pretty much it. I put those early demands in the book. It wasn't anything egregious. And the management just refused 
They were like, we don't do that. And, and Babbitt's like, but this is, this is what unions do. And they're like, not this one. <laughs> um, and it's so simple to think back and how something so spectacularly disastrous could have been avoided had it just, had there just been some, some conversation on the table. Um, I, I don't think Walt foresaw anything big like that happening. I think he was just wearing his blinders. Well, and it seems to me from reading the book that Disney and Babbitt both had kind of fatal flaws. Walt had a stubborn streak and Babbitt was uh, somewhat reckless and it both sort of didn't serve either of them well. Do you think had they both approach this a little more delicately maybe somehow they could have come together and continued working together at some point yes next question (laughs) (laughs) but those those two descriptors you have reckless and uh, and uh, stubborn yeah i think walt was reckless you have to be reckless to make the first animated feature cartoon right yeah and babbitt was stubborn you have to be stubborn to stand up in a crowd and and Mm -hmm. demand things like that uh, to, to be the mouthpiece for a union. I think they were both so similar in those ways. Mm-hmm. It's just their, 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 also their egos were both on the line. Mm-hmm. Our Babbitt had felt, and I go into this in the three years of buildup before the strike, that he felt personally used because Gunther Lessing enlisted him to be the leader of this fake union, the in-company fake bogus union basically just to placate everyone and to block Willie Byoff, the guy, the mafia gangster from another union who was trying to enlist people. So Babbitt felt used and he realized he was just a pawn. He realized he was a stool pigeon and he didn't like that. Walt had his own ego thing too, because everything, his whole identity was tied up into the company. Um, It wasn't like, like his name was on, was on top of the building. Uh, And I think that had it not been his, like he was calling everyone my boys. And even then, even during the strike, they went on record in the newspaper saying that this was paternalistic. And and then they didn't understand why. Like Walt was, Walt thought it was a personal issue when really it was just the nature of how things were going. So yeah, it, it, it's just eerie how both of them were guilty of the same stuff. The only difference is that Walt was coming from a place of kind of like um, power, I guess, because he was the the producer and owner of the company. But the but the 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 strikers didn't understand at the time that that power was kind of on a precarious edge because the war in Europe had started and had hurt the company so hard. Taking a look at Babbitt, uh, j- just really interesting for me to go back and read about him and from other sources and sort of uh, l- looking at his career. Uh, what do you think, um, if, if you wanted to point somebody to a work that uh, really encapsulates what Art Babbitt could do best, what's one or two uh, uh, works that he did that you would recommend? Oh, my gosh. Um, I I love... Okay, there's a scene in Mickey's Amateurs. Um, the last sequence is Goofy playing a one-man band. And 
that's my one of my favorite pieces of drawn animation of all time is Goofy playing a one-man band. It's just brilliant. It's hilarious. It's it's Goofy doing a million things at once on this giant machine with a bunch of instruments, and he's just doing his best, and it still fails. Babbitt studied. He studied people. Um, he studied music. He uh, he just put it all in that one sequence. He's probably you know best known for doing Geppetto in Pinocchio or The Queen in Snow White, mm-hmm. and and Geppetto is great. I love Geppetto. I love the dancing mushrooms in Fantasia. I think he actually put himself in the dancing mushrooms in Fantasia. I think he saw himself as the tiny mu- uh, mushroom um, who who is a little bit out of step with everyone, but still thinks he's the star of the show. I think Babbitt was a little self-aware. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, th- that's my that's my favorite bit of Babbitt animation. Now, I should say that um, this conflict has a bit of a, a nice resolution to it in that the company did name Art Babbitt a Disney legend. Yeah. Um, if you were to speculate, maybe... And I know that that is uh we're we're putting you out on a limb here, but what do you think Walt's thoughts on that award being given to Art Babbitt would have been? Um, you mean like if Walt was still around? Yeah. Now we should say the Disney Legend Award didn't exist while <laughs> Walt was alive, so we'd have to probably explain to him what it is first. Yeah. But um, but in the company recognizing Art Babbitt, because I think that that relationship had become so frayed. Uh, after all of this that I'm just wondering what your thoughts would have been on, on how he may have approached this recognition. Well, you know, it was uh, Roy E. Disney who, uh, who had the idea to honor Art Babbitt uh, posthumously. So this was in 2007. Babbitt had died in 1992. And I don't think, I think the awards had only existed for a couple of years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that that Roy presented it, um, I think, says something about the family tremendously. Um, well, I I don't know. I'd like to think that he would have been able to bury the hatchet. I don't think Art would have, if he if Art was alive, I don't think he would have set foot on the studio. He grew to be a very angry older person to hold a lot of bitterness. But who knows, maybe if they were both alive in 2007, maybe they would have shaken hands and said, um, it's all in the past and we're going to honor you as a legend now. And you will, and art would not have been erased from Disney history because all during Walt's lifetime after 1942, mentions of Art Babbitt were like omitted from, from pieces of literature um, and not mentioned in books and not mentioned in press material. And he really feared that that he was being punished for leading the strike. And not just leading the strike, but being <laughs> the way he led the strike. Um, the way he led the strike, he led it just very contentiously, seemed to lack forethought that, oh, wait, this guy I'm calling names, I plan to work for him again soon. Like he, he didn't seem to think in the long term. He was caught up in the fury of it all like he was a revolutionary and he and and i'm sure it was a it was kind of fun to play that role but he he hurt a lot of feelings because of it 
you mm-hmm. you you mention um, well, and you've mentioned throughout the interview about all of the different primary sources that you've come across, and what I really appreciate, and I think it's why the book is such a uh, is told in such a you know novel type way, is because you only use primary sources. Was there ever any thought to uh, using later interviews or using um, recollections from people in later years? Not when it came to the strike. There's so many feelings about the strike, and I did not want it to be reliant on um, just memories and oral history. Basically, I wanted each source to be a piece of evidence that could hold up in court, basically, and say, like, I'm just reporting on what happened. I'm not leaning one way or another. When you have oral history, and there's so many great stories out there, but you're, you're... you're very limited as to what it's knowing what actually happened. I got to know three folks from that time before they passed away, Don Lusk, Willie Pyle and Marge Champion. And I would ask Willie Pyle who was living just a short bike ride from me here in Manhattan. I would ask him stories about the strike. He was sharp as a tack, even at age like 97. And, and he would answer me. And then maybe like the next day I would find stuff about that thing. I asked him and Willie's memory was wrong. I mean, you can't blame a guy. It happened what, like 70 years before. Mm-hmm. So even interviews that happened maybe 30 or 40 years after the strike, how reliable can they be? There's really no way to test it. I wanted to really triangulate my sources. If I couldn't triangulate my source, I didn't put it in. If I couldn't find actual research from that time to back up a story, then the story had to go. Um, And there are some great stories. I think there's room for a second book, like an oral history book, if someone wants to put that together. Tom Cito did a great job gathering oral history for his chapter on the Disney strike in, in his book. And he had, he had, you know, the incredible honor of knowing a lot of those folks in person, but also, you know, memory and feelings, color, color a person's idea of the facts. And I didn't want that to be my case. I wanted to be able to like look at things that happened day by day. And that's why I don't use resources after like 1948. I wanted things to be close to that time since people even today have such strong feelings about it. And that, that's a great, uh, again, segue into my next question. It's like you're in our uh, Google document here looking at what we're going to ask you next, but you've got a lot of information in here about the labor movement as well. And so I'm wondering if this has uh, become a bit of a hobby for you as well in researching the the ebbs and flows of the labor movement. And it's interesting because, you know, we see large corporations today like Amazon and Starbucks really doing some union busting and, and trying to resist unionization. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on where the current day labor movement is in the country. Oh, I I, I don't know. I hope, you know, I hope we're going towards stronger unions and and unions in greater numbers and being more pro-union. The nature of work has changed a lot because people are working remotely. So I can only hope that things are more pro-union over time. I, you know, my parents being part of the Philadelphia Teachers Union just would talk about the union like you talk about going shopping. It was just part of life. It wasn't anything that was out of the ordinary for me growing up. And I don't think it should be out of the ordinary for for people. When I was working as an animator, it felt weird to not have a union. And it it felt used to be asked to come into work on weekends 
all the time. Like for one of my employers, it wasn't just crunch time. It was like every weekend we were asked to come in. And I kept thinking if, if we had a union, we would have someone who would voice our grievances mm-hmm. and maybe we wouldn't have to, maybe the producers would schedule a more realistic production schedule. So we weren't forced to come in on weekends every weekend for the span of six months. And, you know, I have, I have uh, kind of empathy for those animators from 1941 and I can only offer my support to the folks at Amazon and Starbucks and anywhere else where they're fighting for a union. I'm always going to be a hundred percent pro union. You know, last month, uh, Disney had a rather cordial response to uh, a basically a statement from the unions that some of the unions that were representing cast members at Walt Disney World. I didn't know if you had any insights on the company's current mindsets uh, to how they handle their unions uh, or where they're at. Uh, clearly, in the time uh, since last month, we've also had a major change with a, a new CEO right. being installed, mm-hmm. but just didn't know what if if you've kind of followed the current labor trends with the Disney company? Um, a little bit. Tangentially, I'm not a big labor buff. Believe it or not, I'm not a big labor buff. This book was my first venture into, oh, technically my second, into writing about labor. The first one was interviewing my parents one time for the anniversary of the, of the Philadelphia teacher's strike, which happened. The anniversary was, I think, 2013 because the strike was 1973 and they were both straight out of grad school and had just started their careers. So this writing this book is, is really me just being a kind of dipping my toe into labor history a little bit. And I'm an armchair labor historian at this point. I, uh, I wanted the book to be interesting for people like myself who generally kind of like, feel like they might be overwhelmed by labor history or think Mm -hmm. that it might be boring as hell. And um, sometimes it is. And when it's about cartoons, it's definitely not. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) This book is uh, anything but boring. Cartoons and extortion and murder. Yeah. Yeah. There's murder and mafia in there too. (laughs) And Lots of go back to that party, lots of drinking and trying to ride horses and everything else. I mean, it, it just seems uh, some wild times back in the day uh, forming this company as we start to look towards uh, Disney celebrating their 100th anniversary here uh, this upcoming year. So it's just really great to get a chance to talk to you and to read this book. I do think it is something that Disney fans everywhere really need to check out because it's, it's interesting the uh, amount of information, new information for Disney fans that you get out of this book. And this isn't to put down uh, the the works like the the Neil Gabler book. Uh, that's a very detailed book. This, to me, is a detailed book that also is entertaining as well, which is a hard balance to have. Um, and so I've read a lot of books about Walt Disney, but this was one that was so fascinating to me and really did become a page turner. Now, I do know that you've spent an awful lot of time in interviews talking about this particular book. And uh, you're an author, you're an animator, you're a professor, you have all these amazing creative endeavors. So the last question that we like to do with our guests is just to basically give you an open forum 
forum and say, is there a, a message or a story or something that you always want to talk about, but you're never asked about? And so uh, open forum for you to take it in whatever direction you'd like. Wow. That's such a, such a powerful uh, platform you just gave me. Well, you know, folks who want to follow what I'm doing or what goes on with with me and the book and any other projects I'm doing can visit my socials, which is Jake S. Friedman, both on the Instagrams and the Twitters. I'm such such an old fogey that I've, I'm not really hip hip with what the kids are doing these days, but I do my best to stay with it. And if 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 people end up, you know, following, then I'll keep on posting. But I guess, you know, this whole project started with my mentor and teacher, John Colhane, and he recognized something in me. And I bet there are listeners right now who either are young enough that they're they're looking for a mentor or old enough that they could open up their hearts to be a mentor to someone. And, you know, John's mentorship, there was never any official badge, like you're my mentee now. It was just like, I just kept hanging out with him and I just kept listening to him. And I think, you know, all the listeners out there in radio land, it's a, it's a, such a unique relationship, the mentor mentee relationship and think about someone who you could connect with like that because it changed my life. And I just want to pay it forward to whoever might show up next. And if you want to be a mentor or mentee, find, find that relationship. So, so you can build that and change either your life or someone else's. That's so great. Has he told you what your next project is yet? John Colhane? Well, I would need a Ouija board for that because he passed away a few years ago. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's up there in animation story in heaven, but smiling and laughing. My next project is, uh, uh, well, there's the Disney Afternoon book, which was started back in 2018 and was just put on hiatus. And it, you know, as I said, it's, it's pretty much done. It needs another round of editing at this point, but I'll be making sure that I'm going to make this book the very best that it can be as a fan, as an historian for all the folks of Disney afternoon of, of Disney animated TV out there, just to make this such a great piece of, of uh, research and literature and making it fun to read with lots of cool pictures and stories in it. And it too has its underdog story, just like the Disney revolt. Let's just say that, that that that's something on the back burner. That's great. And we'll have to have you back on uh, once it's out. And so we can talk all about it again. So thank you so much, Jake, for everything and for all that art and creativity that you're putting out into the world, because it really helps all of us not only just understand something that we love, like Disney, but also just helps enrich uh, us. And that's what we certainly need moving forward. So thank you so much for your time today. Oh, well, thank you, Craig. I appreciate it. And Brandon, thank you so much. It's really nice. I appreciate it. I found him just as personable and uh, just such a good storyteller. And it comes such across in reading this book because I, I keep coming back to this. But when I go into a book that I know is going to be about a historical event, and I know you've covered a lot more of these than I have, Brandon, I'm not saying that they're all just dry or that you're getting a lot of information all at once, but there's a way that a history book reads, and then there's the way that this book read. And to me, uh, I really just devoured this. I actually 
listened to a lot of it as an audio book as well. I had the physical copy of the book. I, I found the audio book to be really entertaining on my runs as I'm training here for Run Disney in just a couple of weeks. But uh, it was great to talk to Jake today, right? Absolutely. He was a great interview. I, I've had the good fortune of interviewing some really, really great historians and really great people who are passionate about film history. And he really ranks up right there with uh, the best of them because he's really passionate about the project and he's incredibly well-researched. And the book really showcases all of the sources that he pulled from and it really feels like you were there and it gives you the uh, perfect time and place and it puts you right there into the action and into the scene and it really gives you a fully expanded idea of how all of this happened and how all the dominoes fell. Yes. And so I'm now excited to go to his website, thedisneyrevolt.com, to check out all of this kind of chronological documents in order because they were in public domain. So he was able to scan those in for us. So that's something that I hadn't gone back and visited myself, but I definitely will be doing in the, the very near future here. It's something, again, the labor strike is not necessarily talked about a lot. It's kind of referenced in every good uh, biography about Walt Disney. And certainly it's used as uh, maybe a means to an end to get to how Walt became so anti-communist and how he became involved in the HUAC hearings as well. But uh, it is something that I think this provides that additional perspective of maybe why there was such confrontation between these two individuals that certainly I didn't know of before. So just great. Uh, thank you again to Jake for coming on. Thank you for all this research and for 12 years of research going into this book. Uh, so pick it up for, for that alone. The fact that there was so much work that went into this book as well. And of course you can find this book wherever you find uh, your independent bookstores and then also uh, online on those, all those major retailers as well. But Brandon, I want my Disney folks to come over and listen to all the great work that you're doing on uh, Front Row Classics. I'll tell you, I was listening in the car ride home today from work, the Patricia Ward Kelly kind of myths and legends about singing in the rain. It was really fun. I'm glad. I'm not glad that this happened to Gene Kelly, but I'm glad that she did confirm one of the myths that's out there that he did have the fever in the title song when they were filming that because that's one that just kind of elevates him in my mind to like this legendary status so she was busting all these myths about this movie and i'm just like okay is this one real like are they going to ask about this and of course you did and uh she did spoilers let us know that gene really did have like 103 degree fever that day when they were filming spoilers the fever is like the one true myth that people have heard over the years about it which she explains we eric and i had a lot of fun because this is our third time talking to patricia and she uh, we could tell that you know this has been a year-long celebration of singing in the rain and here we are in december and i think she she's a little tired of talking about singing in the rain and so we we certainly cover that but we we move on to other things but there are certainly a couple myths surrounding singing in the rain that really annoy her and she really sets the record straight in our interview yeah it was so great it's i'm about halfway through the interview now i can't wait to listen to the rest of it and i'm always just refreshing my feed looking for that front row classics episode you do great work over there with eric and with everybody else that you have on as well so tell my listeners where to go find you 
Yes, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts, uh, Front Row Classics. Um, we have a Facebook page, Front Row Classics Podcast. We are on Instagram at FRN Classics Pod. We are on Twitter at FRN Classics. Uh, at the time of this episode, we will have just dropped um, our latest episode on the Shop Around the Corner uh, for just in time for the holidays, which I recorded with my friend Kelly Lorenz. And that will be uh, right there in the feeds for you. And then coming up, Eric and I are also talking to our friend Emmett Stanton, who was with us a couple of months ago. And we're going to be talking about the Thin Man just in time for New Year's. That is so great. And uh, I better put on some classy accent here, because if you are coming over from classics and this is the first time that you've listened to Beyond the Mouse, uh, we do have a show all about Disney. We have some wonderful interviews that uh, Brandon helped me plug in this episode. Thank you for that, by the way, Uh, mentioning that a lot of them appeared on the back cover of this particular book. But you can find us wherever you find podcasts uh, just by searching for Beyond the Mouse. You can also follow along with us on social media. The one I'm going to plug tonight really is just that Beyond the Mouse podcast pals on Facebook, because then you can become involved in the conversation. And certainly we'll talk about the Disney revolt in there as well. And then also join our Patreon if you'd like. We love our patrons and it's a growing group of people. We have a private Facebook group for that. And it's just fun to be able to go back and to do some live updates. In fact, tonight I'm going to go live and talk about the interview that we just conducted and kind of give them a prep for the episode that will be coming out today, the episode that you're listening to right now. Uh, I'm not 100% certain on exactly the order of how we're going to do episodes here, but you mentioned someone at the top. You said that Don Hahn was mentioned on the back of this book. I will let you know, uh, dear listeners, that we are in contact with Mr. Hahn, and he is hoping to come on uh, in time for the Christmas season. He has a documentary that he did actually in conjunction with the Walt Disney Family Museum called Walt Disney at Christmas, and it hopefully will be appearing on Disney Plus in the very near future. And so in order to celebrate that, he's coming onto the show and talking all about the holiday traditions of the Disney family with us. And I'm excited about that because Don was our very first episode of uh, 2022. And it looks like he will also be our last episode of 2022, which will be just a wonderful way to end out our year here. Um, But of course, we also have our big last episode, the end of the year wrap up that we love to do. That will still be uh, on your feed right around January 1st as well, because uh, I love looking forward to the year that will be 2023. And so we're going to tell you a bunch, but thank you for supporting the show and continuing to listen to uh, wherever you find podcasts. We really do appreciate everything that you do. So for Beyond the Mouse, I am Craig. And I'm Brandon. And we will see you in the front row. Um, I, the front row of a labor strike, Brandon? I don't know. Um, <laughs> that... Let's just keep Willie Bye off away from us. <laughs> That's right. Okay.